Well, good evening. Let's go ahead and pray together and commit our time in his word. Lord, we uh, would ask you now because uh, we are in great need uh, for you to arrest even our attention spans, that we might hear your word for what it really is, not the words of men, but the very word of God that points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. We have just sung and In a sense, Lord, we offer this to you as our worship, even right now. And we would pray that you would have your place among us. You've promised to dwell especially with your people when we gather at your household. We belong to you. I pray that you'll um, help me to speak clearly, help us to hear accurately, and then to go forth living in this world that people would marvel at who we are, what we think, and we'd have an opportunity to, again, point people to you. So be with us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want to go ahead and invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to have a little bit longer introduction tonight. I'm embarking on a two-week study uh, of this text And um, where I want to start with is just this, that one of the marks of wisdom is paying attention to warnings. I'm sure you parents uh, wish that your kids maybe paid attention to your warnings a little more. Foolish people hear warnings, and what do they do? They ignore them, right? That's not going to happen to me. You're just being chicken little, saying the sky is falling. Proverbs 27, verse 12 says, A prudent man sees evil and hides himself. The naive proceed and pay the penalty. Or Proverbs 28, verse 26 says, He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. One of the reasons why the older a person gets, the wiser he becomes or should become Um, is that he has learned from his foolish mistakes. We paid the painful price for our failure to heed warnings, and we've seen the price that others have paid for their own carelessness. The failure to take heed to godly warnings is both dangerous and potentially fatal forever. We heard this morning how Mordecai warned Esther that she would not escape wicked Haman's plot. And what did it do? It motivated her to action. Here's the simple truth. The wise person listens to and acts upon warnings. That's a fact. They don't dismiss them. They don't spurn them. They don't despise them. They don't try to undermine the credibility of the person issuing the warning. In fact, they welcome warnings, they invite them, they appreciate them. And in the truly most humble sense, they live with an open request to receive essential warnings in any way they can get them. The wise person kind of has this as his or her mantra, please don't fail to warn me if you see me straying, please pursue me out of love and warn me. That's the heart. Now let's get specific. The fear of God is not just an endangered species. It's near extinction today in our world. Even maybe even you might say the professing church. Christ's loving protective warnings are simply ignored or they're treated often as in consequential. And what we're going to be looking at tonight and next week, what I've titled this is Christ's loving protective warning found specifically in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to look at this. Unfortunately, we're often too numb, but because Jesus loves sinners, he gives us many warnings in his word. And I hope you're glad for that. In a sense, his entire ministry could be described as a loving warning regarding the consequences of not believing in him or following him. 
Time and time again, the Bible illustrates people who either forgot Christ's loving protective warnings or were so naive that they just didn't take them seriously. It's nothing short of prideful presumption to think or feel as though we do not need Christ's loving warnings that he issues. And God is so kind to provide these warnings because his intent is to redeem a people for himself, to rescue us and others. In scripture, we see people suffering needlessly. Why? Because they just didn't heed the warnings that God sent, the loving warnings. I mean, just think about this. Moses warned the Israelites that they would get fat, happy, and comfortable in the promised land after God had delivered their enemies to the point that they would then forget God and his great deliverance out of Egypt. What happened? They did exactly that. Over and over, the prophets continued, uh, continually warned the people to not intermarry with foreigners lest they be led astray, therefore have divided allegiances, commit adultery and then our idolatry, then be disciplined by God through the captivity at their hands of their enemies. And what happened? See, history bears this out. Jesus warned Peter about his denial. And what happened? Paul warned the captain and the sailors not to set sail. And what happened? The ship broke apart, all was lost, and God still graciously intervened to save all their lives. So as Christ's spokesman, Paul's letters include a lot of protective warnings, beloved, to people that Paul loved and churches that he planted, people that he had relationally invested in a lot of of time and energy, tears even, and that compelled him out of love to issue many different warnings. In other words, you could say it this way. We know that Paul told the Philippians specifically, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's an unqualified, permanent, confident promise. Yet, even though he knows that that promise is true, he also recognized that the means by which the Lord would do that included a lot of loving, protective warnings. Spirit-revealed warnings that through him and other biblical authors were given. Paul loved Christ's flock and he was a deeply concerned pastor and friend. And like Jesus, Paul's love for these Corinthian Christians drove him to a passionate plea of a warning to avoid the paths that would bring disrepute to the name of Christ and destruction to their own souls. Now you might say, Kevin, come on now. That's well and fine, but aren't you kind of overstating this issue of of warnings and the sobriety of it? The Bible's full of a lot of comforting promises too that bring us a lot of, of joy. Why is all this negative talk about warnings? Well, I guess it's just to say this, because as you understand the sober warnings, it makes the promises sweeter. And it increases the depth of your confidence and your joy that you abide in. In other words, they're not opposed to one another. Understanding those promises, understanding the warnings is going to make the promises. In fact, they're going to make them be better. You could even say it this way. In a certain sense, a warning is a promise of a negative outcome if it's not heeded. Did you get that? It's a promise of a negative outcome if you don't heed it. Now, let me illustrate the New Testament theme of loving protective warnings just to kind of, again, I, I want to... If I could accomplish one thing among many, one of my goals tonight is I want you to love warnings. I want you to love the warnings, even though there are some of them are very hard. But think about this in terms of a theme of loving, protective warnings that Christ issues to his church. A few rhetorical questions, and then I'll maybe give you a reference that goes with each question. Is it possible to appear genuinely committed to Christ and yet eventually turn away and prove that that faith was never the real deal. 
The answer to that in scripture is what? Absolutely. First John 2, verse 19, they went out from us because they were not of us. Is it possible to be self-deceived about the state of your relationship with Christ? Matthew 7, verses 21 and 23 in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Is it possible to profess faith in Christ and yet not be a true disciple of Christ? Absolutely. James 2, verses 14 to 26. Confess to your blue in the face, but it's by your life that demonstrates it. Is it possible to be lukewarm spiritually and totally oblivious to its accompanying danger? Yes, Revelation chapter 3, verse 16. Is it possible to sear your conscience and grieve the Holy Spirit? And I, I could keep going on here just to give you a few more. Were there people in Scripture who started strong and finished weak? Casting a cloud of doubt over the true state of their soul? Sure. Saul, Solomon, Demas, can name some others. Do we have an enemy who knows how to disguise himself in the clever camouflage of an angel of light in order to damage and destroy us? Absolutely. Is the discernment needed to detect spiritual danger often lacking in the part of God's people? Sure. Romans, or Proverbs chapter 5 and chapter 7. The naive fool. Do we see churches and people in scripture tolerating aberrations in their supposed expression of biblical, visible Christianity? Galatians, 1 Corinthians, the seven churches in Revelation 2 through 3. See, this is not a minor theme, folks. This is not a minor issue in Scripture. Now, my purpose with these rhetorical questions, just to set you at ease, is not to scare the living daylights out of you or drive you into some sort of a frantic frenzy of fearful, paralyzing um, stuck. That's not God's intention behind these warnings. Because we turn to Christ who is the solid rock, right? And we stand firm. He has overcome. He has conquered. He reigns now at the right hand of God. He is interceding for you. He's not only the king of kings with absolute authority, but he is also the good shepherd who knows how to take care of his own. So why does Jesus give so many warnings? Again, I say this, it's because of his loving protection. And his warnings are a means by which he accomplishes a work of maturing and preserving us. Because as saved sinners, what are we still prone to do? Just like sheep. Wander, stray, go the wrong way, and so on. So we want to persevere in fruitfulness, but we only can do that Not in our own strength, but by abiding in the Lord Jesus Christ. The warnings that Jesus gives are meant to draw us nearer to him, not scare us, but to draw us near to him. That the only way that we can endure is through him, and then we share that with others. If I could just put it bluntly in the vernacular, to not pay attention to Jesus' loving warnings is stupid. It's just plain dumb. When we forget or we don't treat them as important enough to remember, there's a difference there between, oh, I forgot. Well, how important, what did you treat it? There's, when we forget, we're actually rejecting the love of the Savior who issued them for our good. Adverse consequences are gonna come by failing to heed his warnings. Our Father in heaven models perfect parenting, right? Because He has not left us and he, to ourselves, he knows how to discipline his child out of love for us, not abandon us. And so he lovingly warns us that we won't incur the pain of his disciplining rod. So for tonight and next week, I want to direct our attention to 2 Corinthians 11 to receive what I think is probably the most foundational warning that undergirds all other warnings. Um might call it the mother of all warnings if you want to use that. But this foundational warning is given to motivate us to do one thing, to love Christ supremely. 
That is, to keep our faith in Christ strong and to demonstrate to a watching world what a Christ-transformed lifestyle looks like. So we're going to look next week and tonight at six reasons why Paul warns these Christians, and therefore us, so that we will be, number one, protected from counterfeit, empty, unfulfilling pursuits, and number two, preserve a lifelong love for and satisfaction in Christ. So on the negative, it's protection from those things that really won't satisfy. And on the other hand, it's preservation for a lifelong love in purity and simply simplicity of devotion to Christ. In short, it's to cultivate a pure and simple devotion to Christ. My goal is that you and I would come to love Christ's warnings and heed all of them. At the end of your life, you don't want to look back with regrets of sadness because you can see too frequent occasions or too long of times where you didn't heed the warning to cultivate a pure and simple devotion to Christ. So we're going to look at the first two reasons tonight. Next week, we'll look at reasons three through six. And each of these six reasons are going to be in the form of this, if you're taking notes. The warning is needed because. Okay, the warning. I need the warning because. Let me read our passage in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 1 through 5. And then we're going to have particular focus really on verse 3. We're going to really spend two weeks on one verse, verse 3. Let's look at this together. I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin." But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles." The first reason underscoring why this warning is needed is this. It is because Christ sends caring pastors to deliver it. Christ sends caring pastors, and you could even add to that caring friends, caring fellow brothers and sisters, fellow church family members. Christ cares enough to raise them up and send them to you as if to say to you and me this is so important therefore I'm going to send this type of person into your life that's how much he loves us though he wouldn't do that if we didn't need it right so the warning is needed the evidence the first reason we can note that why Paul had to warn these Christians is because Christ sent him to deliver this message see Paul was again in labor that Christ would be formed in them. He lived with this passage and passion, and according to verse 2, what did he have for them? He had a godly jealousy for them. He says that he gave them to one husband. Who's that? Of course, it's the bridegroom, Christ Jesus himself, with the goal of presenting them to Christ as a pure virgin, verse 2 says. He was look, he, he wanted the day when the church was going, the bride was going to meet the bridegroom. He wanted that day to go well for you, for his church. That look ahead was his vision. And he uses the picture of marital fidelity to show the intimacy of closeness with Christ. So you can think about, for those of you who are married, take that picture. This is the the issue. You want people in your life that are going to be so caring for you that Christ will send them that you will then be a contribution to the purity and simplicity of that kind of a bride. He uses that picture. He was afraid of infidelity on the part of the bride, namely us of an impure love. Specifically, he was afraid of a a dangerous combination as we get into the text. And that dangerous combination, kind of like 
fire and gasoline being too close together was two things. Number one, Satan's attempt to deceive them. And number two, their own proneness to strain. He's afraid of that. He doesn't want the bride to go that direction. And in the context of this book, Paul is defending his apostleship against false teachers who are contradicting him and they're undermining his character and his teaching. And his defense is pretty simple. Look, they're attacking me, but I've done nothing other than point you to the Lord Jesus. We need that kind of friend. We need those kind of people in our lives. And I could say it to you this way. We need Christ to raise up those kinds of pastors and elders and leaders in the church. Paul was not a fearful man. When you think of a fearful person, he's the furthest thing from it. He's a bold man. He's a courageous man, paid any price. Yet what does our text say? He is legitimately afraid that Satan is using these errant teachings to lead these people astray from the one who he has been constantly laboring and trying to betroth them to. See, Jesus is your true love and your true husband. Good preachers, good teachers, good leaders, good friends, good family members remind you of that and help motivate you to keep your focus. Paul is trying to prevent Satan's deceptive trickery from gaslighting the destructive fire of their own propensity to stray. The antidote is point them back to Christ. So I just say to you, beloved, if you look at this, when he says, right, but I am afraid that that right there, just wrapped up in that phrase is pastoral care par excellence. It's what it is. Jesus knows his people need this, which is why he gave them Paul. You could look at Ephesians 4.11 for a cross-reference. I won't take time to go there. But the point is, Paul is called by God, qualified to lead. The Spirit set him apart. He cared deeply for these people. And they needed this type of loving, protective leadership who consistently pointed them to Christ. Loving, protective leadership warns the flock and doesn't fail to warn the flock. Paul was mature and not ignorant of Satan's schemes. He accepted his role as a watchman and he faithfully sounded the warning alarm over and over. And as one of Christ's under shepherds, his voice was simply an instrument in the Lord Jesus's hands to guard, protect, teach, warn, and tell them what they needed to hear. He is not sounding a false alarm, nor is he taking this situation lightly. I mean, his fear is real and it's justified. Do you see that? He's, he's not afraid. He's not a fearful person, but he's afraid of this. He's concerned. He isn't indifferent to the response required, nor is there any coldness in his oversight, as if he's in his ivory academic tower. There's urgency in his love. God knows we need men like this. Paul knew his Old Testament history. And he knew God's people need this. He correctly diagnosed the dangerous situation and faithfully discharged his calling to warn Christ's blood-bought bride. Look, guys, mature, godly leaders and godly friends point out things in our lives where sin has deceived us and where we have succumbed to strain from the purity and simplicity of devotion to Christ. We need that ministry. They warn us and they do so because they love us and they love Jesus. So what's my point then? The point is this, don't you downplay it. Don't you treat it indifferently. Don't act like you don't need it. Don't make decisions inconsistent with that. Don't estimate your need for this in your life. You and I need exactly this kind of pastoral oversight and friendship in our lives. We need these kinds of friends. We need to acknowledge that need. Believe it. 
and accept God's provision and appreciate the type of people who will shepherd our souls by giving pointed necessary warnings all out of genuine love for us and love to Christ. Now to help you a little bit here, you can discern the man or the friend or whoever and the, 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 the Christ-loving protective warnings, you can discern that in two ways. Number one, you can discern it by their motivation. And number two, you can discern it by their content. There's plenty of other people that are trying to get you scared to death of all kinds of other things. Those are not the warnings you need to be listening to. So how do you discern the difference? For Paul here, he is motivated not by personal offense. He has no personal agenda. He isn't abusing his apostolic authority. He's not trying to be cool, go viral, or create a personal persona of prestige and fame. That's not his motivation. For him, it's really simple. It's about their relationship with Christ. That's it. He's motivated by Christ. Nothing more, nothing less. He's not trying to build the megachurch of Corinth. He is fulfilling his God-given calling, trying to be obedient to that calling and please his master. In fact, he's actually worried about being derelict in that calling because he remembers what Ezekiel said, how he told the watchmen of Israel that if you're unfaithful to sound the warning and the alarm, then their blood's going to be on your hands. So he doesn't want that to happen. His motivation is loving protection of God's flock, so he warns him. In a sense, he's a steward, and therefore he's motivated to be a faithful steward of what God has called him to. He's his brother's keeper, if you want to put it that way. His motivation is Christ-centered. Now, second, I told you the other way you can discern it is by the content of the warning. In other words, by what's being said. What he said helps us discern if, this, if a person's warning is really from God or not. Now, I'm going to have more to say about the content of the warnings. We get down through the rest of the, verses, the, rest of the verse next week and, and so on as we work our way through the text. But now I just want to make a simple point. The content of his warning is Christ-centered. He's a Christ-centered man in his motivation and his content is Christ-centered. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus as your husband, bride. It's about his love. It's about his marriage. It's about his purchase. It's about his headship. It's about his reign. It's about his preeminence in your life and over all of life. I could just say it this way. Warnings devoid of Christ are a good chance, at least a red flag for you, manipulative, man-centered, and they won't keep hold of your heart. And you need to be careful of those kinds of warnings, no matter how loud they may be. If they're not Christ-centered in their content, then your antenna should be going up. Now, let me draw you back to the text, which teaches about protecting us from Remember I said there's protection and preservation, protecting us from counterfeit, empty, unfulfilling pursuits and preserving a lifelong love for and satisfaction in Christ. You and I need Christ-given, Christ-sent pastoral oversight who fear God, who fear Satan's deceptive trickery, who fear our own propensity to not discern our enemy's tactics. And many Christians today suffer because they've placed themselves under leaders who don't have the courage to issue loving warnings. And second, they, place, they, they suffer because they've placed themselves under those who lack the ability and maturity to discern the times in order to give the needed warnings that Christ wants given to their church. Now look, I've been around here not long as most of you. But it's just, if you, if you looked at our 2019, just church family, if you looked at our 2019 church family picture directory and compared it to today, there's been a turnover. Not, I mean, there's not everybody. It hasn't been wholesale, but, but there's, there's change, right? My point is in the providence of God, some of you here tonight, God will move you somewhere else over the course of your life. God will bring some more people in here to our church. That's just going to happen. What am I trying to help you do? 
You need discernment on who you listen to and who you place yourself under. And not moving in a direction where you're not taking this seriously of your need for these kind of people and this kind of leadership in your life. You need to be under people, leaders and friends and relationships who have the courage to give you the loving warning and who have the ability and maturity to discern the warning that you need. Jesus gives a parallel warning in Luke chapter 8, verse 18. Take care how you listen. If you listen to a steady diet of immature unqualified, Christ-minimizing preaching and teaching through superficial podcasts, emotion-filled tweets, and experience-driven social media posts, you might feel comfortable and you might feel even entertained, but you will be vulnerable. Because most of that noise is spiritual fast food, junk food that dumbs down sober, in-depth thinking. Be suspicious of messages not specifically and carefully drawn out of Christ's word where he is the central message. Some teachers today feel way too free to be clever and cute when they should have a healthy constraint to the text out of a holy fear of God. Much disaster is averted when you're frequently warned by Christ-centered leaders and friends and church family who will stand in your way, lay down their lives, and plead with you until they are blue in the face. You and I need this type of oversight of men who will yell, there's a train coming, get out of the way. And if need be, if you are not responding, come tackle you and wrestle you down and get you out of the way. Let me just ask you practically. If you were straying, get a pen and paper handy. I want you to write something down. If you were straying, are there several people close enough to you that would notice? And then in love, would they be so afraid for your soul that they would passionately, lovingly warn you? I want you to right now write down the names of three people that you know would do that in your life. Write them down right now. Who are three people that know you well enough and they they would know you well enough to notice if you were straying and they would love you enough to come after you and warn you for your own protection of your own soul. And if you're having trouble coming up with three, then I can just say this to you lovingly, but gently, you've got some relational investment that you need to make in the family of God. Because we need those kinds of people. And if you would write them down, can I tell you, don't let the week go by without going and telling them that you considered them to be that way in your life, to thank them and to ask them to do it, even if you're not listening. Don't underestimate the value of or your need of these kind of relationships with leaders and fellow church, family, brothers, and sisters. Now, I'm going to resist the temptation to go down a rabbit trail. But men, this applies to you in the shepherding of your wife and your children. What kind of a leader are you? Are you a Christ-loving, Christ-protecting leader who warns they need you? Be afraid and take action. Your goal is to secure a pure and simple devotion to Christ. I'll leave it at that. So again, I say the first reason for tonight, why this warning from Paul is needed is because Christ goes to such great lengths and great trouble to raise up and sin, caring pastors, caring friends to deliver his warnings. It's a critical means to help us cultivate a pure and simple devotion to Christ. And his purpose is so that we will be protected from the counterfeit, empty, unfulfilling pursuits that lure us away. 
and to preserve a lifelong love for and satisfaction in the glorious person of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, reason number two, a little more quickly. The second reason why this warning is needed, according to our text, that was all from the first phrase, but I'm afraid that. The second reason is this. The warning is needed because Satan has a successful historical record. Satan has a successful historical record. Not only does Christ send pastors, friends who love us, but also Satan has a historical, right? What is Paul afraid of? He is afraid, what's the phrase say? As the serpent deceived Eve. Stop there. I'm going to talk about craftiness next week. It's interesting to me. Paul took the Bible literally. See, what do you mean? He believed in a talking snake. Did you get that? The serpent deceived. He he took Genesis 1 literally. He believed it. Satan's historical record in space and time dates all the way back to the very beginning of history. And he has repeated that successful game plan ever since. Eve is in a sinless environment before the fall, living in a state of innocence. And what happens? She gets hoodwinked by a crafty devil. She did not set out on that faithful day to go be deceived. The serpent deceived her. It was not on her to-do list. Yet it happened because she didn't listen carefully to God's loving warning. Listen, she didn't take God seriously enough to remember the details of what he said. Did you get that? She didn't take God seriously enough to remember the details of what he said. Her compromise was a result of her naivety, her overconfidence in her own strength and her own pride. There's only one way to beat the devil, beloved, and it's not in your own strength. There are two principal errors in our thinking that Paul doesn't want us to make relative to the successful track record that Satan has. Number one is don't underestimate the power of your enemy. And number two is, don't overestimate your ability to withstand his temptation. Don't underestimate him. Don't overestimate yourself. Paul's antidote to both is keep your focus on Christ. He's the one who has already overcome our diabolical external enemy and his arsenal of accomplices, the world, idols, disease, death, other sinners, And he's the one who keeps our focus on abiding in him, who alone provides the power of victory over sin. Greater is he who is in you than he who's in the world. Praise the Lord. In all things we overwhelmingly conquer through our own strength? No. We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us, Romans 8, 37. The warning is this. You and I cannot avoid being tricked and led astray except by a desperate daily clinging to and abiding in Christ. When you understand your enemy, you know pure and simple devotion to Christ has got to be the antidote. See, that's the only way. That's the only help. The word deceive here, it means to trick or to confuse. So getting tricked and confused all starts with Satan... A suppo- giving Satan a supposedly innocent hearing. That's what Eve did. Satan's deception starts with just offering an alternative interpretation to what God has already said. You cannot avoid some ex- exposure, some measure of exposure to satanic induced interpretations of life, but you can avoid overexposure to it. And you can do things to minimize his speaking to you through even seemingly innocent ambassadors that are really on his mission. Beloved, don't let Satan get away with questioning Christ's sufficiency or any thought or action that would lead you away from Jesus as being your supreme love. Be alert, be sober. Jesus himself in the flesh was sinless, perfect God. And as the perfect man, he was the truth impersonated, living, walking around in this fallen world. Yet what did he need to do to discern and combat Satan's deceptive trickery? As a man, he had to use use scripture to fight Satan's deceptions, correctly discern that error, 
and positively assert the right interpretation and application of the truth. And that's how he kept himself from sinning. He talked to himself with truth instead of letting Satan's reasoning speaking trick him. Do we think we can do any less? The Holy Spirit empowers us through his word with a specific focus on the sufficiency of Christ for every circumstance. Turn, you're in 2 Corinthians 11. Just turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Here, we're told, for to this end also I wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things but one for whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. So that no advantage, there's the purpose, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his schemes. In our fellowship together in the local church, we cannot be afforded to be ignorant of Satan's schemes. One of the schemes in this Corinthian church was the case of restoring a sinning but now repentant brother. And if Satan couldn't prevent the church from practicing church discipline, then what he wanted to do and attempted to do was to get them to practice overzealous church discipline. One man said it this way, and I think this is good. If God can't freeze you out from a truth, he'll burn you up with an overzealous application of the truth. That's Satan's tactic, to freeze you out or burn you up. He doesn't care one way or the other. And so for this church, not being ignorant of his schemes is basically to say Christ-like forgiveness serves as the oil to the fellowship and as a Christ-exalting testimony of brotherly love and action. Therefore, all men will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. See, Satan is trying to discredit Christ, so his efforts are now directed at Christ's representative body, the church. Christ has promised to build his church, that's sure. But one of the means he uses to do so is loving warnings exposing our enemy because that enemy has a successful track record. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. There are diabolical spiritual forces Uh, forces of spiritual darkness actively waging war today they use governments they use institutions they use false religions they use armies they use money enslaved corporations they use mobs they use rioters they use judges they use juries and on and on and on we could go Six brothers and sisters were praying and singing at at an unborn baby murdering place. And now they're facing 11 years of jail time, a ruined reputation, and a complete financial destruction. Out of Nashville, Tennessee. The Department of Justice has prosecuted them, yet no prosecution of worse things done to crisis pregnancy centers. I'm not trying to get political, but that's not by naive Satan's an evil one. He's a roaring lion seeking not to just nibble out you, but to devour you. Look at Job. When God removed his restraining hand, what happened? Satan brought down fire and consumed. He sent the Sabaeans as a marauding band and destroyed everything. There was a wind that knocked down four corners of the house and destroyed all of his children in it and the Chaldeans. God's restraining hand of grace, letting Satan loose. What did he do? You talk about a cruel, evil, ferocious, mean person being. It is Satan. So yes, Paul should be afraid that as the he's got a successful track record. He wants to rip your head off. 
Look, I'm not trying to stir up some sort of sensationalized conspiracy theory. But there is a grand conspiracy theory of the God of this world seeking to destroy the Lord Jesus Christ and anybody attached to him. Like the Corinthians, we need this warning because our enemy, the serpent, dating all the way back to Eve, has a successful historical track record. And our only way to not be such a casualty is to not underestimate him, to not overestimate our ability, and instead cling to a pure and simple devotion to Christ. Rest assured, our enemy is a defeated foe. Praise God. There's no sting in death for those in Christ. Nonetheless, the serpent of old wages war, and you're in it whether you like it or not, whether you realize it or not, whether you're awake or not. You're in it. And we need to think soberly. If you're a follower of Christ, you're one of his sheep. Praise God. But you're also one of his soldiers. And we've got to post a man in this world. In war, you must study your enemy, know his moves, anticipate his actions, and detect his spies so that you will not be deceived. That's what Paul's saying. I I don't want what happened to Eve to happen to you, Corinthians. Historically, he has a successful track record that dates all the way back to Eve. This is a loving warning that will protect us if we will heed it and get ourselves equipped through a pure and simple devotion to Christ to be more than conquerors. And we'll pick that up next week as we look at Satan's craftiness. You might want to even look ahead and go back to Genesis 3. I want to close tonight not on that note of the sobriety of our enemy, but on Christ's victory. And when I read a couple of texts out of Revelation, I want you sobered, but I don't want you afraid of him in the sense that the ultimate victory is already won. So we cling to Christ. But we need to be sobered. We need to be alert. It is a real war. Revelation chapter 12 verses 7 through 12 says this, and there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. Who's, who's this great dragon? And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who does what? Deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down he who accuses them before our God day and night and they overcome because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony and they did not love their life even when faced with death For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. Then Revelation 20, verses 2 and 3 and 10. And verse 10, you see the sobriety of being the God of this world and waging war. But Christ has overcome Revelation 20, verses 2 and 3 says this, And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. And then verse 10 says this, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The devil, the serpent of old who deceived Eve and is out to deceive us 
is thrown in the lake of fire, no longer deceiving anyone. What's the point? The point is this. See his end and don't go there with him. That's the warning. To anybody that doesn't know Christ, that is your destiny. That is where you are headed. Only Jesus can deliver you. And we don't want to end up with Satan in eternity. Thus the protective loving warning of the reality of fleeing to Christ and a pure and simple devotion to him as the antidote. I love the words of the hymn. I'll close with this. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth, we could say including us, on earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide? Pity the soul. Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be, Christ Jesus it is he, Lord Sabbath his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. We need to be warned to pursue the purity and simplicity of devotion to Christ because number one, Christ sends caring, loving pastors, friends to issue that warning. And number two, because Satan has a successful track record of deceiving. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time tonight. Thank you for your loving, kind warning. It's sobering. Lord, we don't think this way oftentimes. Uh, There's some heavy things here. But Lord, we're so thankful that you are available to us, that you invite us to come, that you work in us to draw us to yourself and that you, Lord Jesus, have overcome. And so we count our victory in you And Lord, we don't want to have anything or anyone erode the purity and simplicity of our devotion to you. Would you reveal anything in our lives that might be causing that and give us a sobriety of heart and mind to eliminate anything and everything that does erode it that we might pursue you as life itself for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.